my conviction is that the way we have be, been presenting the gospel, and it's a long time, we might say centuries, at the very least decades, but I think centuries, the way that we have been presenting the gospel has distorted it to such a degree that we are living into the prophecy that Jesus spoke against the people of Israel in his own day when he said, you travel over hill and dale to make an ocean and sea, to make a convert. And once you've accomplished it, you make them twice a child of hell as you yourself. There is a great danger in sharing a gospel that is not the gospel of Jesus. And I think we've done that. And this is treacherous territory, treacherous territory. Today, we're gonna to talk about a corporate problem we have, and it's in the way that we describe the gospel of Jesus. And I think the seeds of this thing go way, way back, but they found a very peculiar kind of fruit in the Protestant Reformation. And I'm as Protestant as a person can be. I really do respect Luther and the call to read the scriptures anew and for the laity to become priests in their own right as they were destined and called to be so that they can hold their leaders accountable to the word of God and so that they themselves can seek after God with all their heart, with all their soul and with all their strength. I'm all for that. But there was something else that came with that commitment a bit of yeast sewn into it that over time has grown to epic purport. I mean, I don't even think that's a cliche to say epic. This thing is taken over the gospel. It's taken it over. And we're going to talk about it a little bit today. We're going to turn to the book of James. We're in James chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works. Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. What James is wrestling with is a very Western, and he's trying to help them to understand that something they could do in the thought world of the Roman Empire, they could not do in the thought world of the scriptures. They thought they could distinguish what they believed from what they did. And I think Luther sort of thought this too. He thought faith was about belief, 
but that's a very Western concept. You, it doesn't take long to read the scriptures to realize the authors did not distinguish what we believe from what we do. And you might say, the scriptures say we're free from the law. Paul says that anyone who tries to be justified by the law inherits a curse. For cursed is everyone who tries to obey the law. He says in another place that Jesus became a curse for us so that we could be freed from the curse of the law. Isn't he telling us that in order to follow Jesus, there are no requirements, there are no responsibilities, that faith is about believing in the merits of Christ for our salvation, and it has nothing to do with any kind of responsibility for us. Isn't that what he means? Isn't that what Paul means in Ephesians when he says that we are saved by grace through faith? And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one has any grounds for boasting. Isn't he saying what Luther thought he was saying? And the answer to that is no. Something else is being argued. And I'm going to present it. I don't know if I can prove it to you. I don't know if anybody can prove it to you. The, the Spirit has to convict you of it, but it's going to take some reading of the Scriptures. So we're going to go to a few places. I won't always turn. I'm going to talk about them. You might have to look them up on your own. But the distinction Paul is making between faith and works is not the Greek, Roman, Western distinction between what we think and what we do. That's not the distinction he's drawing. In fact, that's what James is fighting against. He's saying you can't do that. What you say you believe expresses itself in what you do. The reason we know that God was right to credit Abraham as righteous in chapter 15 when he had done nothing is because of what he did in chapter 22. That faith translated into action. And so we know that that faith was genuine. Now, God saw it as genuine long before he did anything. But if he had never followed God in faith, then he wouldn't have ever been called righteous in chapter 15 by God. That's the point of James. Now, he's not saying that in chapter 15 of Genesis, which where Paul plays a lot, that Abraham had done anything. But God didn't ask him to do anything there. He just asked him to believe he would have a son. And Abraham did. If all God asks is belief, then that's enough. But later, God didn't just ask him to believe he could raise Isaac from the dead. He asked him to sacrifice Isaac. Now, if Abraham says, hey, hey, I believe, but I'm not going to do it. How do you think that story would have gone? Well, that's James' point. When God requires only belief, belief is all that's required. But when he requires obedience, belief is not enough. And Abraham showed that he could believe when belief was required, and he could act when action was required. And that makes him the person that God saw him as in Genesis chapter 15. So James is trying to help very Western-minded people who distinguish between the things they think and the things they do very easily to think in a more Hebraic way, a more biblical way, where all beliefs are enfleshed. They're acted upon. It wouldn't be, I don't think, too far to say that James believes that what you believe is best seen in what you actually do. Now, in our culture, we believe there is often a disconnect between what we intend to do and what we actually go about doing. That a person can, for a long time, intend to do better than they end up doing. 
And I don't think that's a foreign concept to the scriptures either. And we might get into that. We'll see. But James is not talking about those subtle things. He's talking about the fact that if we claim, the example he gives, if we claim to believe that God wants us to be generous with those who are hurting, and we do not actually behave generously, then we don't actually believe it. We may believe God said it, but we don't believe it's true. Because if we believed it was true, we would do it. So to truly trust God, to truly have faith in God, requires us to put our bodies where our mouth is. And there's a lot of teaching against hypocrisy about pretending, acting in Jesus' teachings. And James is picking that up. And Paul does too. You might notice that even though Paul makes a big deal about faith, he spends a lot of time in the book of Romans talking about behavior too. And he also suggests that he's accused of saying that you don't have to obey. That it, the more you sin, the more God forgives, the better God looks. So just keep on sinning so grace may increase. And Paul says, that's not what I mean. And he says, those people deserve their condemnation. Well, it's amazing to me that so many in our day have taken what Paul denied he was saying and made it the heart of the gospel. That God requires nothing of you except to believe that only he can save you. That is simply not the teachings of the New Testament, not it taken in its entirety. So why then is this, is law and gospel, why are they pitted against each other in the New Testament? I'm gonna do my best to summarize that as best I can. So first, we have to dispense with the idea that the Israelites believed they were saved by works. They did not believe that. They were saved by grace. And you might say, well, how is that? Well, when they were slaves in Egypt for 450 years, God did not save them from that situation because they had followed the law. There was no law to follow. The scriptures don't say that the Israelites were such wonderful people in Egypt that God decided to reward them by saving them from their slavery for their good behavior. Scriptures don't say that. God had made a promise to Abraham, and he delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt on the strength of that promise, not because anything they had done, but because God was being faithful to the promise he had made long before any of them were born. So it was purely by the graciousness of God, purely by the chesed of God, by the loyalty of God to his word that they were delivered. And they didn't do anything to earn their way out of Egypt. It's not like they took up swords and fought and proved anything. God did all those plagues by himself, oftentimes while they complained the entire time. And when he finally took them out, he did it because he sent his avenging, avenging angel in during that 10th plague and slaughtered the firstborn of the Egyptians. And Pharaoh told them they had to leave. And so the, if, you watch, if you read through the book of Exodus, the Israelites are as passive as a people could possibly be as God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. The only one who had anything to do was Moses, and all he had to do was talk. So they were delivered by grace. And then he takes the people of Israel to Mount Sinai. Now, it's at Mount Sinai that something happens. Now, the people were under no obligation to remain at Mount Sinai or to go with God afterwards. There's nothing in the text that says he would have killed them if they didn't want to sign the covenant. They could have gone back to Egypt. They could have wandered out into the wilderness and see if they could make their own way. But he offers them, after he saves them by grace, a covenant. 
Now, this is where law comes in, because when Paul's talking about the law, he's talking about the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai after they were saved. He had already saved them from Egypt. After that, he gives them a covenant. And the covenant specifies the behaviors that God expects of them. And it also specifies what they can expect of God. It's a contract of sorts. And they agree to it at Mount Sinai. That's the law. Now, there's every reason to believe, and the scriptures are replete with this. You can read it throughout the Torah that God expected them to follow this law. And he had written it in such a way that they could follow it. It was not meant to be impossible to follow. It was meant to be understandable. There's even one place in the Torah where God says, this law is not far away that you have to send somebody up to get it. It's not so low that you have to send somebody to dig down to find it. It's come near to you so that you can obey it. God says that. And we find even in the teachings of Jesus that that's true. He allowed them to get divorced. Jesus indicates that that wasn't his ideal will, but he did that because they were hard-hearted. It's another way of saying that God made the law possible for them to follow. It's probably the reason he didn't outlaw slavery right away, the reason he didn't do a lot of things. He wanted that law to be followable, but also to point them in the direction of holiness. But here's the key. Israel agreed to the stipulations of that covenant, and then they broke it over and over and over again. 724 years. God gave the northern tribes of Israel a chance to become Torah observant, and they refused. And so he allowed the Assyrian Empire to come in and to decimate their country. And then another less than 200 years, but another 150 years or so, he allowed the, the southern kingdom of Judah to become Torah observant. And eventually he sent them into exile. He did these things, not because God is capricious or because he was so angry at them, he just felt the need to punish them. It's because it was in the law of Moses. This was the agreement that they had signed, and they signed it in good faith, and they broke it. So the curses of that covenant were all that were left by the days of Jesus because they had broken it. And if they broke it, you can read Leviticus 26. You can also see compatible passages at the end of Deuteronomy and in Exodus. The penalty for breaking it was curse. They broke it. They were cursed. So now what do we do? This is a lifelong covenant. There's no way out of it. How can we be free from the law? Not because there was anything wrong with the law, but we broke it. So now the law stands against us. So what do we do? Well, Jesus comes. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this, but what Jesus does for Gentiles and what he does for Jews are similar but different. Jesus dies as a Jewish man under the law of Moses so that all Jewish people could die in him to that law and be resurrected so they could have a new agreement with God. That's what he does for the Jewish people. Now, if you're a Gentile, if you're one of the nations, you're not Jewish. You never agreed to the covenant of Mount Sinai. You didn't need Jesus to die on the cross for you so you could be freed from the curse of the law of Sinai. You didn't have to do that. You never signed that. But we too, and this is Paul's point in Romans at the beginning, we too as non-Jewish people 
also had a law given to us. It wasn't written in a book, and it wasn't as clear as the law given to the people of Israel, but it was still a law written on our hearts, and our ancestors transgressed that, and they willfully put out their eyes and willfully blocked their ears and refused to believe what they knew the truth was because it had some truth had been given as an allotment to all nations on earth. You might call it the covenant of Noah. If you see some of the some of the requirements there, and maybe there were more, but the Gentiles violated that, and the Gentiles, of course, all sinned in the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. So Jesus does need to save the Gentiles too, but not from the law of Moses, from the law of creation, from the fall of Adam and Eve, and from the transgression of our own consciences before the Lord as we denied what God had given us and the reality of the nature around us, and we had sought our own way. So. God saves both Gentiles and Jewish people to bring them into one body, but he has to free them from different things. And when Paul is writing about the Jewish freedom, he writes about the freedom from the law. This is not freedom from responsibilities. It's not freedom from requirements. It's freedom from the law of Moses. Now, just like God delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, not by any works that they did or were doing, not because of any merit they had built up because of being such a wonderful people, but simply on the strength of a promise that he had made by his own grace, as loyalty to his own word, God delivered them and brought them to Sinai. The New Testament authors tell us that that is essentially what the whole world has received in Jesus, that while we were slaves to sin and death, God saved us by the blood of Christ and took us out of that Egypt, the bigger Egypt, the cosmic Egypt, the, 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 the tyrant of all tyrants, sin and death, corruption. He took us out while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Just like while the Israelites were still slaved, slaves, the Passover lamb was sacrificed for their children. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what happened when Israel was delivered Originally, this is the shadow of what was going to happen in Christ. They were brought to a mountain and given a law. But what happened to us? We were delivered from Egypt. Were we given a law? No. We were given a person. We came to the living law. Not to a covenant written in a book, but to Jesus, the Son of God, the law in the flesh the word made flesh. We came to a living, breathing Torah. The Israelites had to put faith in the stipulations of the covenant to adequately express what God expected of them in their time. We have to put faith in the person of Jesus. All who followed God out of Sinai followed a book. They followed the covenant in an ark. The ark led the way. The book led the way. And that's what they followed. We were brought to a person, that book in the flesh. And we were to follow the person. That's what Paul means when you have to put faith in Jesus and not in the law. But that is not to say that following Jesus doesn't come with its requirements. But it's a different kind of requirement. In some ways, the law of Moses was easier. Because in the law of Moses, you could read what you were supposed to do, 
and it was it was laid out for you very specifically and as long as you did those things you could none of them thought they were righteous but they thought they were righteous enough this is all god expects of us now you might say no 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 they thought the law made them righteous that's ridiculous why would they be making sacrifices every year if they thought the law made them righteous the day of atonement sacrifices every year were intended to cover the sins the people didn't know they were making unintentional sins is what it says over and over again what that told them is that they were loaded with sins that they didn't even know they had and they needed sacrifices to atone for things they didn't even know and what that should have told them is that the law didn't tell them everything that there were things that they were doing that were wrong in god's eyes that he never told them about and because he didn't tell them about it he didn't hold them responsible for it but a sacrifice still had to be made so they knew the law didn't make them righteous but they believed that it was what God asked. And if you do what God asks, you're righteous enough. And they knew what he asked because it was written down in a book. Now we have come to a better covenant, but a harder one, because we follow a person, Jesus. Now his teachings are also written in a book. And his lifestyle and, and the behaviors that he lived out, because we're not just following a book where we can read it. We have to follow a person and we have to follow their example. And so Jesus teaches us. He also embodies the law in front of us. And now for those who come to this mountain, the mountain of Christ, we've been delivered from slavery to sin, just as the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt by no work of our own. It was purely by the grace of God. And now we've been brought to this mountain and we didn't earn the right to be here we didn't do anything to merit it it's not because god looked down and said that guy that girl they're good enough i like them they stand apart i'll die for them that's not what he did he took us all out jew and gentile every person on earth as paul says in second corinthians he was reconciling all flesh to himself in christ not some flesh all flesh in second corinthians 5 17 and following and so he takes us all out and we all come to a mountain just like the Israelites did, but they came to a law. We come to a person. So what is the law of Christ? Whatever Christ asks. And he might ask you for things. When the, the nice thing about having a law written down is that God can't ask you for anything that's not in it. But when you come to a person, gloves are off. And you might say, well, how do I know what he wants? Well, that's the benefit of having the written law from the past. You know that that God wrote that law. And so it gives you an indication of what God wants and what he doesn't. And when we read the history of what he judged the Israelites for, which aspects of the law he trumped on, because they broke a lot of the law, but his prophets don't point out everything they did wrong. Like the prophets don't say, I'm sending you into exile because you kept planting wheat and corn in the same field. And I'm sick of it. He doesn't say, I'm sending you into exile because you keep wearing garments that have cotton and silk. And I didn't want you to have mixed fabrics. Like he doesn't, they, the prophets don't, but they don't point those things out. The prophets point out the things from the law of Moses that God was willing to destroy them for. And so the writers of the New Testament, they look to those prophets and they say, these are part of the core of who God is, caring for widows and orphans in their distress and remaining unpolluted from the world. That's how James summarizes it. But he gets that from the prophets of Israel. When the prophets of Israel tell God, I mean, tell the people of Israel on God's behalf why he was judging them, those reasons become the foundation of the 
ethical teachings of the New Testament. These are the things of the law that matter to God, whether you're in covenant with him or not. And so as we come to Jesus, Jesus is informed by those things too. And he teaches similarly to the prophets. And the apostles pick that up as well. And they teach us. Not a written law that you can check boxes on, but how to understand the example of Jesus and his teachings so that you can live free from law, free from a written covenant, and now follow the God who is, stands before you in real living color and do what he asks, not because you're compelled by a written document, but because you believe in him. You believe he's telling the truth. You trust him because you trust him. You follow in his footsteps. This is the law of Jesus. And that's what James is trying to say. You can't say you believe in Jesus. You could say that about the law. You could say about a written book, yeah, I believe that's true, and then not do it. But when you're following a person, you either follow him or you don't. So for James, if you really have faith in Jesus, you're going to follow him. That means you, you trust him. So Paul wants, the problem in Galatians and other places where Paul is talking about the, the law is that there are people who are trying to make Gentiles who convert to Christianity, to, they, they want them to become Torah observant. They want them to first make a covenant with God at Sinai and then make a second covenant with Jesus. And what Paul is saying is you can't do that because the covenant of Sinai is a curse. Jesus died to save all of us from that covenant. Why would you ask the Gentiles to join it? They come to faith directly in Christ. They don't need those intervening years that we had. Now, they're going to need our teachings, they're going to need our example, they're going to need our prophets, but they don't need that covenant because they've come into relationship with God directly by Jesus. So we shouldn't be trying to make them Torah observant. Instead, we should make them Jesus observant. And that's the debate of the New Testament. Now, what I want to get to is the issue of repentance and where we have gone wrong. The church has embraced the idea, not every single local congregation, but for the most part, especially in Protestant Christianity, and I, we have plenty of things we could criticize about Roman Catholicism, and maybe even Eastern Orthodox, all, all of us have our blind spots. But for Protestant Christianity, we have accepted the distinction between what we believe and what we do as normal and natural, and that God is interested only in what we think and what we believe, and not in what we do. We've accepted that, and that is pagan. There is no following Jesus without following Jesus. There's no mentally assenting to Jesus without bodily following him. That distinction, we're not allowed to be made. We are free from the law. We're free from the covenant of Mount Sinai. Praise God. But we are never free from Jesus, from his example, from his teachings, and from his lordship over our lives. And the disciples live this out for you. You look in the book of Acts. Not only do they obey what the prophets warned Israel about because they know that that was the real heart of what God wanted, they also obey the example and teachings of Jesus. And then if Jesus tells him to do something in addition to that, like he told Paul to go to Macedonia, they do that too. Because they didn't just come to a book. They came to a person, and Jesus can command anything he wants of his people. That's being free from law. Jesus is not bound by a written covenant. 
He can command you at his will. And you might say, well, how do I know it's Jesus? Well, that's why we have the book, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a consistent God. He is not going to ask you to do something today that violates the character he has revealed to us in the scriptures. So the scriptures still become a, an essential part of what it means to test the spirits, to see if they're from God, to discern whether it's God leading us or another voice. You can't do it without the scriptures. He has given that to you. This is the sanctuary we must enter in order to know we are hearing from him. But the expectation of the New Testament is that we don't serve a book, we serve a person, and that person can interrupt our lives and direct us in ways that we may not be prepared for. God of a written book is small. He can only ask so many things because they're written down and that's all he said he would ask. But as a person, God is untamable. The gospel is not a get out of jail free card. The gospel of Jesus does not say that as long as you believe Jesus died for you and that his death can save you, it doesn't matter what you do. That's not the gospel. That's a gospel of demons. That is a gospel intended to keep you from holiness, keep you from a transformed life. It's to keep you looking at Jesus without ever following him. And why does he want that? Because as long as you stay off the road of following Jesus, you actually have never followed Jesus. And the enemy knows this. He wants you at that safe, stationary, sedentary point where you're looking at Jesus, but you are not following him. You're believing in what he did, but not enough to let it change you. When you trust a person, you don't just respect the person. You don't just believe the stories of the things they've done. When you trust a person, you put yourself at risk in following them. And that's what he's asking for. He asks a lot of us, tells us to deny ourselves. We live in a culture that tells us that we should indulge ourselves, that who we really are is who we think we are, that who, what we really should do is what we feel deep inside we should do, that we should be true to ourselves, that we should be authentic to how we were born. That's the world we live in. But Jesus denies that. He says, no, no, no. If you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You say no to your desires. You have to say no to your flesh anytime it contradicts what I've asked of you. You can't want to indulge yourself or want what you want. You can't even agree to get what you want. But only what I want. That's what he says. And that's, you know, it's one thing to say you believe he said that. It's a whole other thing to actually live like you believe that's the right thing to do. And that's what he's asking of you, that you live as though he's, he's right. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. Some of us are highly conscientious, feel guilty about everything. We think everything is our fault. And it is uh, peaceful to know that we're not responsible to decide what's right and wrong, that Jesus is responsible. But that doesn't mean we're not responsible to follow him. Faith has feet. Faith has feet. For the writers of scripture and for Jesus, when he says you need to have faith in me, what he means is you need to trust me enough to do as I'm asking. And when we stand before him, we're not going to be judged based on the amount of good we did or the amount of bad we did. 
We're not going to stand before him and be judged compared to everybody else in history and how we stack up. We're not going to be judged on whether we, were, we earned the cross, but we will be judged on how much we trust Jesus. And our lives demonstrate our faith. If you've bought the false gospel, that all you had to do was believe Jesus' sacrifice was enough, and that was all that was required of you, you have never become a Christian. To become a Christian, you must trust Jesus, not just with your thoughts, but with your body and with your soul. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, with all your doing. And the God that we love in that way now has revealed himself in Jesus. If you haven't followed him, or perhaps you assented to the beliefs of the church, the way the Israelites assented to the written law, but have never truly begun to follow with your feet the teachings and example of Jesus as they have been interpreted for us by the apostles he chose to teach us. If you've never done that, then it's not a formula that you can follow. To begin to follow, you must begin to follow him. For Peter, it was leaving his net at the river's edge, the water's edge, and following Jesus. For Zacchaeus, it was paying back all the money he had stolen as part of his job as a tax collector. He had defrauded people. It was paying that back and following Jesus. What it means to follow him, those first steps, is not the same for everybody because we haven't all walked the same road before meeting him. For Paul, it was turning away from Damascus and not following through to arrest Christians and to put them on trial and then to have them executed for believing in Jesus. Paul had to stop that walk. And when you meet Jesus, something has to stop. You must turn around. And we as a corporate body of believers in the church, especially in the West, but around the world, we must repent of the lie that we told that is consistent with the false prophets in the days of Jeremiah, who says, your sins will never find you out. Those who do wicked will prosper. God is happy to forgive you. In fact, it makes him look so good when you're so filthy and he says, okay. So just, just live into your sins. Sin boldly and more boldly. Still believe that Jesus saves you from those sins. If that is a lie and we are falling under judgment for telling it, and if we do not repent, and he will see no distinction between our teachings and those of the Gentiles, those of the world. Let's repent. Say, how do we do it? Stop saying it. And start living otherwise.